You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, and though he can hide his cold gaze, and you can shake his hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and you can even sense that your lifestyles may probably comparable, he simply is not there. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge, huge. I'm not here, simply. (laughs) Nobody here by that name. Nobody here by that name. To Cure Your Curiosity, that is actually from American Psycho, an excellent movie with a horrible sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, Which leads us, (laughs) which leads us seamlessly into uh, a discussion. Uh, You and I held up a tradition of ours recently. We did indeed. Uh, Where you and I went to go see Saw X, otherwise known as Socks. (laughs) The 10th film in the increasingly ludicrous Saw franchise, which is now looped back on itself. So technically yeah. it was Saw X slash Saw 1.5. Right. Years and years ago, I think I think it was part four that was coming out. Yes. I, I do like the Saw franchise. I like the universe of it anyway, you know. Saw 1 was great. It was a, you know, a very unique story. Mm-hmm. I really like Saw 2. Saw 3, it starts getting needlessly violent. So I got you on board with it because I wanted to go see it right. when I was staying up in New Hampshire that weekend. And we go see Saw 4. And Saw 4 was, at that point, the worst of the franchise, <laughs> only to get outdone a year later with Saw, Saw 5. five. Yeah, Saw 5, which was like Saw 4 with half the budget, which <laughs> in and of itself was already like barely enough money to, to buy a cart full of groceries. Like, yeah, all the traps are the same thing. It was all uh, a bunch of nails nails inside of mason jars. Part 6, I thought, was good. It had a better story to it. Part 7, which was the one in 3D, was... I don't even remember. I I remember all of them just this one big melange of of a grumbly voice and that puppet thing and the tape deck that says, Play Me, which he must buy in massive bulk, uh, along with the batteries to power them. That'd be a great way to like end this series. It's like, we found him. Right. How did you find him? Amazon. Amazon, right. It turns out he ordered 625 of these uh, tape decks. There's a lot of franchises like that that just like completely wear out their welcome. Friday the 13th is one of my favorites, mm-hmm. but wow, does it get weird after, we'll say, part five. Yeah. It gets it gets so weird that they're almost not even horror movies anymore. Like, there's no. None of the things that you go to a Friday the 13th movie for are in it. It's all cut out. And that's the thing, too, with a lot of these horror franchises that get, like, dragged out a long time, like Saw, like Friday the 13th, like Michael Myers there with the Halloween franchises. 
and especially the Nightmare on Elm Street ones. Yes. Where, I mean, who am I rooting for in these movies? Like, I shouldn't be rooting for Jason. Right. You should not be hoping that Jason will have a, a bunch of really cool kills. At that point, you're starting to, like, rack up warning signs. <laughs> if you ever look yeah, at exactly, the, like, right. if you ever take a psychology test. And yeah, we're going to put you on a list, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and that's my problem with, like, Saw X is, you know, Jigsaw is not the hero of these stories, or at least he shouldn't be. Right. You know, you know there's, like, a weird argument to be made, like, he didn't kill anybody. It's like, uh, well, he kind of did. No, he gave him choices. Yeah, and the first choice is, do you want to be put in this trap? <laughs> no, I do not. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, he just made it so there was no way there was no way that people were gonna survive. In Saw X slash Saw one point five. Yep. There's a bit where the main villain character says, like, I finally got the amazing, like, dangerous jigsaw. And because this is Saw one point five, he wouldn't be famous for being Jigsaw yet. Right. Which made me giggle like an idiot in the cinema for a probably a solid five or ten minutes. Yep. Just at how dumb that line was. The point that I'm getting at with this conversation and you is like every film series, you get to the point of diminishing returns. Why right. are we still making these? Why do people still go to see these? I'm looking at you, Star Trek. I'm looking at you, Star Wars. I'm looking at you, Jaws films. Anything that has that franchise eventually runs out of money, steam, interest, and quality. We'll be getting to a very famous sequel a little later on in the show. We will. But for now, I have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, man. This time around, I am looking for what is in round numbers. You don't have to give me exact digits, but in round numbers, what is the speed at which the International Space Station travels around the planet? Okay. Cool. That's a fun one. We'll, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Yes, we will. But for now, we will be talking about this week in history, and this is the week beginning, December the 18th, and I believe it is your turn to start. It is indeed. So before I tell you what we're doing for the week of December 18th, Bill, let me ask you, do you find panda bears interesting? Yeah, I don't know a lot about them. I've seen like Instagram videos of panda bears, like baby panda bears sneezing mm-hmm. and scaring the hell out of their mother. <laughs> and they're adorable, but they're also huge and will eat your face off. That's true, because as we learned in 1985, they're actually bears. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's talk about yep. 1936, where the very first panda, Su Lin, arrives in San Francisco from China. Not the very uh-huh. first panda of all time, but the first one to come to the United States. And it was a, a he panda, or Mr. Panda, panda bear guy. Yep. And he was the first panda that was kept outside of China. Sulin means a little bit of something very cute in Chinese. Fortunately, he was a little <laughs> Two bit Two syllables of, mean all that? Uh, yeah, yes. That's a fun language. It is. Because he was uh, a little bit of something also very sick, he died in 1938. Right, and I'm over here reading that they didn't know that Sulin was a boy or a girl until after he died. Correct. And they did an autopsy on it, which changes everything I've ever known about anatomy. (laughs) I'm sure it was along the lines of, I think Sulin's dead. Are you sure? Oh, my God, look at the crank on that thing. You know? (laughs) I mean, that begs a question. Like, I don't know enough about Panda's anatomy that 
and I mean they are mammals, so I would ex- I would think that they have you know the same roughly the same equipment that most mammals that I've seen have. They do. So there there was a time where they science wasn't sure if they fell into the class of raccoons or into the class of bears, and that they were related to both. It wasn't until they did DNA testing in the 1980s that they fully classified them as bears. And I think ah. the raccoon thing is literally because of the pattern of the spots and the coloration that they have makes them look very raccoon-like. But ah. when I see I them, I just think because it's because they're bear. adorable. <laughs> they, they definitely are, unless you are bamboo, at which point they will yep. eat your face. <laughs> and now this also begs the question because... Every they have a very like small window in their mating cycle, and every time I hear like reports on the zoo, it's like, yeah, we can't get these things to mate. It's like, yeah, because you've probably got two dudes over there, and you don't know, <laughs> right? And you can't tell until they die, right? Right. I, I don't think there's ever been an accidental panda birth in a U.S. zoo where they were like, oh my god, what? There's a oh, we've got a breeding pair. They should have had, like a a panda prom or something, you know? Right. Just see who shakes out or something. <laughs> you know, once they know for sure one's a female, they make they make it wear a, like a bow in its hair just so mm-hmm. people can yeah. tell. All right, moving on. December the 19th of 1960, we have a celebrity birthday, Jeff. Already. Do you know who Mike Lookaland is? I do indeed. I remember All him right. from such TV shows as participating on the Cartoon Kings uh, ice cream eating contest. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so for everybody else on planet Earth, uh-uh. Mike Lookaland was the actor who played Bobby Brady, the youngest of the Brady Boys. The youngest of the Brady Boys, and the one episode of that show that I really remember from being a little, little kid was the Cartoon King Ice Cream Sunday Eating Contest, where he gets the trophy for being the best little brother because he loses the contest. R- yep, yep. <laughs> yes, I remember that. So Mike Lookaland, he got out of, I don't want to say he got out of show business, but he got out of in front of the camera and got behind the camera. Right. So he's done like directing, or at least that's what I'm told. He's done like directing. I don't know anything that he's done. I haven't really looked him up, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure either. I'm sure he directed a bunch of TV episodes of stuff. I can guess that he probably made that decision halfway through one of the episodes of the Brady Variety Show and thought, right, what, yeah. what the hell am I doing this for? Like, get me out of this. Well, how do I get out of this so I never have to do it again? And that was to become a TV director. And most recently, he was seen last year on The Masked Singer, where he was the mummy. Oh. (laughs) Uh, And it was actually on stage with Barry Williams and Christopher Knight. It's like, man, I hope you like those guys. Imagine still having to work with your co-workers from 50 years ago. Jesus. Yeah, I... I don't know that I could manage that if I had to go back and work with the people that I worked with when I first first started working. That's nah, right, just right. not just not something that's in the cards. <laughs> that must be tough. All right, moving on. December the twentieth. December twentieth, nineteen sixty seven. Ian Anderson and Glenn Cornick form the rock group Jethro Tull, which is the weirdest rock group that ever emerged from the nineteen sixties and still be touring in twenty twenty three. Because their lead singer... They're playing like this week, I think, or something. Their lead vocalist and frontman, Ian Anderson, is known for playing the flute. And the flute is an integral part of their rock and roll sound. And no one has done it since. No, not unless you play in a Jethro Tull tribute band, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, I mean... (laughs) 
Yes, just just a dull tribute band. I mean, you could probably throw Lizzo in there too, but I don't think the flute's like an integral part of her sound. It's more like, right. hey, she plays the flute too, you know? Yeah. But no, like Jethro Tull, the flute is definitely, you know, you can't separate them from the flute. No. Right? Once you hear a Jethro Tull song, you'll always be able to go, that's Jethro Tull, as soon as the song starts because of the flute at the front of the vocal side of the, the song. Right. And not only is Ian Anderson a flute player, he is also a motherfucker of a flute player. Like, that guy wails. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely something else to see. He's a fantastic frontman, too. That whole, like, one leg up like a flamingo thing, so it's like half medieval and half, you know, heavy rock and roll. It straddles the, the thing. They are, short of Led Zeppelin, they are the perfect band for your Dungeons & Dragons friends to listen to <laughs> in between saving throws i remember watching early performances of them like whenever mtv first came out mm -hmm. because mtv had nothing else to show he's very charismatic too on yes. stage like uh like very emotive with his facial expressions you know read into that as you will he looks like a crazy person up there <laughs> yeah he does and you know what's funny is Jethro Tull is one of those bands that outside of their like greatest hits albums, they're a band I feel like I should know more about mm -hmm. considering, you know, I, I kind of lean towards prog rock, but I never have. I've never really listened to a lot. I know them only from their singles from the their most popular or best known album is Aqualung. Yeah. Which I think is like 1969 or 1970. So that was a record I had as a kid, uh, and I know that one. But after that, to me, they're like Rush. They have their core fans who buy every record that they've put out, and then there's 99.99999% of the world who know five songs because they hear them on the radio, and they're like, Jethro sure. Tull! You know, and that's right. that sort of... Do, of the singles that you know of theirs, do you have a favorite? Oh, I was just about to throw in there that, yeah, Jethro Tull... It's like how, how I explain Pink Floyd. Right. Do you like Pink Floyd or do you like the five songs that they play on the radio? In that <laughs> yeah. case, I like the five songs that they play on the radio for Jethro Tull. And it's not like I don't like them. Mm -hmm. I just haven't looked into them. Maybe I'll look into them tomorrow, you know, some more tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to pick. I'm probably going to go with Thick as a Brick Part 1. I like that. I like that one a lot. And I like the song Aqualung a lot. Aqualung, remember it was on Rock Band? That was a lot of fun yeah, to play. Yeah, it was. I, I'm I'm a sucker for Locomotive Breath. That's my probably my favorite. Mm. Good, yeah. good tunes. Another interesting fun piece of trivia is in the very first like hard rock heavy metal Grammy Award they got and beat out Metallica, which was awesome. Right, for like Farmers of Freeway or something yeah. like that. A yeah, record yeah, yeah. that literally only Ian Anderson bought. <laughs> You know what? That album I did listen to because we had talked about Metallica not getting the Grammy some months ago or maybe a year ago or whatever yep. it was. And I went and I listened to the Jethro Tull album that won the Grammy. Yep. And I was like, this isn't bad. It's fine. You know? It just was probably a poor choice at the time. It was. I know it made a, <laughs> I know it made a lot of heavy metal fans really, really sad and upset. <laughs> but that Injustice for All didn't get the Grammy. What I well, right. I put it up to like you know what after an hour and a half on stage I'm sure that that flute which is made of metal is very heavy. Sure, you know, and I'm sure the Grammy 
the people that you know the the Academy with the with the Grammys were probably you know trying to explain to Metallica, sorry, but there's no bass. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't. We don't have a lot of rules, but that's one of them. <laughs> you can't have the, an invisible bass player who's only there for yep. the, for the optics, and that doesn't work. Yep. All right, moving on to December the twenty first, nineteen thirteen. Arthur Wayne publishes a new word cross puzzle in the New York World magazine or newspaper in England, and the name was later changed to Crossword. So essentially on this day, December 21st, 1913, was the very first crossword puzzle. What's a four-letter word for cool? That's not cool. Uh, cool. <laughs> um, badass. There you go. Neat. Um, yeah, Neat. Keen. Keen. So anyway, uh, are you a are you a crossword puzzle? I person? do like crossword puzzles. Yes. Do I do them a lot? No. Do I go out of my way to do them? I do not. But if there happens to be a newspaper with an undone crossword puzzle within pen writing distance of me, it will be done. I'm not a crossword puzzle fan. My friend Jim down in Florida, that's all I have to buy, like send him down for Christmas mm-hmm. is like a crossword puzzle book and he's happy. He absolutely loves crossword puzzles. They are. They're fun. Yeah, the puzzle like book that you can buy at the supermarket and all that, that's uh been a long-standing American, I'm going to guess European, you know, tradition. I remember when my friend Mike's wife was in the hospital giving birth to their kid because she was a little bit older, they kept her in there for like 2 yeah. weeks leading up to the uh the day uh they had scheduled for the birth. So I had bought her a few puzzle books just to, you know, keep her occupied while she was in there. If you're going to pick out a favorite puzzle, crossword you can include. But uh, I know Sudoku became very popular maybe about 20 years ago. What's your favorite puzzle, though? What's your go-to if you're going to do I know one? Sudoku was really popular, but I have, like, math impaired. So I never, if it has numbers in it, I'm probably not going to do it for any sort of leisure time. Uh, I like mm-hmm. crossword puzzles quite a bit, but, boy, I love jumbles. And to do the the one that was in the paper, the syndicated jumble, I used to yep. set a timer and see how long it would take me to do each of the five jumbled words plus whatever the hidden word was. Yep. And generally, I could get the five jumbled words in under a minute and the hidden word in under two. Yeah, wow. I was good at those. I'm, I'm good at those. There's another one, Wordle, that's very similar to that. I've played that once or twice on my phone. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very popular now too. I played it a couple of times. Um, then, uh, but me, the one I always liked whenever I bought puzzle books were called fill-ins. So it looks like a crossword puzzle, but it gives you all the words, and you get to figure out where they go. Okay. In the puzzle, you know, Sudoku is similar to that. Sudoku, you don't even have to know math. It's just, I, it's a little hard for me to explain it over the podcast. <laughs> that's but that, fine. It's already, I'm already, yeah. my brain's already glazed over as soon as you said numbers and Sudoku. So yeah. that's fine. Don't try to explain it. You'll kill me. Right. But the beauty of Sudoku was kind of like that anybody could do it. You didn't have to be a Jeff McLarge huge level linguist to get there. You didn't have to be a Bill with 1L level math guy to get there. It was something just about anybody could do. I think that's why it was popular. Oh, it makes sense. 
remember playing, you know, computer solitaire on your Windows 95 computer? Yeah. Where that was sort of programmed to, like, let you win every 20 or 30 games. So, like, oh, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this. And then you start to play solitaire with actual cards. It's like, I've never won a bloody game of solitaire in my life. <laughs> because, of that, you know, it, it, you, the cards themselves can't cheat. But I think Sudoku and, and it, even to some extent Jumbles, because they're not meant to be super complicated. They give yep. you that feeling, that really fast feeling of accomplishment when you get it done, which can, right. for me, brightens my whole day. Yep, and that's what makes anything, you know, popular is, like, my doctor explained this to me one time, like golf, like gambling, like solitaire, you're, like, micro-dosing happiness yeah. with these, like, little successes yep. that mean nothing, but there they are, yeah. Yeah, I like little successes that mean nothing if, you you know... If you don't have that, what do you have, right? And if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. To quote Kurt yeah, Vonnegut. There it is. Yep. All right. December the 22nd. What do you got? Ah, we have another celebrity birthday on December 22nd. We have the inimitable, it's a good word, Rick Nielsen, the founder of and guitar lead slash guitar god of Midwestern rock band Cheap Trick, who has a guitar mm. that is like built based on him and is like life size. So if you see two Rick Nielsens, it's only one carrying his guitar. Yeah, the one that you can strum is not Rick Nielsen, right? Yep, a very, very, very like accomplished guitar player. Like, not only just leads, but very, uh, you know, an awesome rhythm guitar player too. An excellent songwriter. Yeah, great songwriter, uh, good arranger, good producer, all around an interesting guy. And and as good as Cheap Trick is, and Cheap Trick is very, very good. Uh, mm. He still stands out. Uh, just for the way that he plays lead and sometimes also rhythm in the same track. He's he's fantastic. He's one of my favorite guitar players. He was very colorful on stage. He always wore very bright and loud sweaters. Mm -hmm. Always wore a baseball hat because he started losing his hair at a very young age. Yep. And he would do all sorts of like crazy tricks like with the picks. Like he would flick them in the air and catch them and continue to play and stuff like that. Yes. Or he'd throw them up like popcorn and catch it in his mouth. He was a very entertaining person to watch play, for sure. Easily one of my favorite guitarists to, to watch and to listen to. All right, pick a favorite Cheap Trick song. Either Dream Police from the Dream Police record or I Want Be Man from One on One. Because that song is oh my so God. weird. I love I Want Be Man. <laughs> I taught... I. My friend Tom, who's a listener, I got him listening to, well, he was listening to Cheap Trick, and I was like, you have to listen to the one-on-one -on -one album. There's, It's a great album, yeah. but that song, I Want Be Man, is just like so weird and crazy. <laughs> it is the strangest one on that record, and why I remember it so well. There's so many to choose from. I'm going to go with uh, It's the Way of the World. I think that's going to be good, my favorite good today. Good tune. Good that tune. That can change at any given time. Yes. And speaking though of the world and getting around it, December the 23rd, 1986, the first nonstop around-the-world flight without refueling is completed by Dick Rutan and Gianna Yeager flying the aircraft Voyager. So this took nine days, and the flight began on December the 14th, so it wrapped up on December the 23rd. I remember that. I remember that happening. We were in school. Remember that? I, I do. I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. One, uh, every night on the news, they did a segment on that, where that plane was and and yep. and how long they could fly and how much aviation fuel they had in them. And they got interviews with Chuck and Tina, which was like 
Are we there yet? No. Are you sure? I'm sure. We have seven more days of flying. Just sit back. We had a, you and I had a, a high school teacher named Mr. Messier. Yes. Who was enthralled by this story. And part of the enthralling was one of the ways that he talked about the importance of being in machine shop and yep. of engineering was all of the parts on that plane had to be machined by someone who worked to the sort of tolerances that we talked about in class and that we aspired to when we were in the shop. We didn't work to airplane tolerances, but we did really good, precise, precise work. And that right. plane would only stay in the air if the machining was correct. And that was a big lesson that we took away from anything that was sort of like that. Well, you have a slightly different memory than I do because I remember I had bought Omni Magazine, which was like a science magazine. Yes. Uh, for for a completely different topic, but it had a like cutout of the Voyager yep. that you could like assemble and fly like this like really high tech paper airplane. Yes, to demonstrate you know just how long this thing could stay you know a uh, <laughs> yeah, aloft, how, how long it would glide. Aloft. Yeah, yeah. So Mr. Messier's room was right above Mr. Simbalisti's office. And Mr. Simbalisti was the head of... Academics. Uh, he was the academic coordinator. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So we had this paper airplane, and we had to, to, you and I had devised this plan that as soon as the bell rang, we were going to take it, and we were going to throw it off the third floor balcony and just to see how long it would stay up in the air. And I threw it in the middle of the crowd, and it just shot out over the third floor balcony and immediately nosedived <laughs> and U-turned and flew right and to Symbolistic's right office. Mr. And we office. were out of there. That was yeah. funny. Yeah, that was very funny. All right. And let's wrap up the week. Uh, with December 24th, we have yet another celebrity birthday. In this yep. case, it is former singer in the Latino group Menudo and actor on General Hospital and super megastar of Latino music that cracked like a thunderclap into the United States, Ricky Martin. Yeah, and he lasted about as long as a bolt of lightning, too. Yes. So Ricky Martin, I think most people are going to remember him from his absolutely enormous hit single, Living La Vida Loca. I had to think about it. Living La Vida Loca. Which was everywhere. It was. Yeah. Yeah. A great, great song. And, and you know, I, I have the CD here someplace. It was a great, oh, it was a great record. Yeah. That, was, it's a, that's a, that record, as the kids say today, that record slaps. Nah. So. That record fucks. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, and he was like the super handsome guy. I mean, they pushed him to the moon as a sex symbol. And then not too far into his pop career, he's like, oh, BT Dubs, guys, I'm super gay. And that almost kind of derailed his career 100%. Mm -hmm. You know? And because I don't know why. It's like, okay, so did you girls all buy his records because you thought you were going to date him? You know? <laughs> Well, I don't think it was that so much as, as this the general, like, his audience is almost mainly in Central and South America, and uh -huh. they're w way more religious than here in the United States. They're a lot more Catholic and traditional, and that can cause problems. Sure. Although, all that being said and done, 
he has been a, like a fixture on TV. He's hosted the Latin Grammys a bunch of times. He's on the mm-hmm. equivalent of like the Latin Voice, right? And has done all kinds of other stuff. He still releases singles now and then, but they never come to the U.S. Yeah, uh, market. I mean the guy's what fifty? Looks like he's fifty-one. Yeah, fifty-one. No, fifty-two. Fifty-two. So he's fifty-two years old, and that's you know way beyond the. Uh, the sour milk date for pop singers, you know, for the most part. If he was an American artist, like a born American artist, he'd be doing residencies in Vegas by now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Do you remember when the, I think it was ABC Saturday Morning Cartoons used to have interstitial segments with Menudo? It was like 1980 yes. to 1983 or so. That was where I was first introduced to this ultimately what would become this style of music, sort of Latino pop. I have actually gone out and actively sought sought out Menudo's music on like Spotify. Have you? All the way back to the Ricky Martin days into modern era. There's still you know, uh, at least up until at least 5 years ago, there was still like a thing, I think. Yeah, I mean the main, the way that that band was meant to work was once you hit the point where your voice changed, they booted you out of the band and replaced you with another person who was a lot younger. Right. I so think, it'd be like I think the, I age think limit the song was, that we're gonna do is really good. It's really good. Oh, that's it. You're out. I don't you know? think it was that young. I think uh, I think the oldest person that ever stayed in Menudo was like 21 or something like that. Right. But it was fairly young. Yeah, it was a young person's right. game. Right. Uh, so that the band could continue with the uh, didn't matter who was in it. Yep. <laughs> like so many bands we talk about on this show. Yeah, they're like the ship of Theseus. Like, you know, everybody yeah. in that band has been replaced three or four times over, and yet they're still Menudo. Yeah. Yep. All right, Jeff. Uh, before we get into the worst movie ever, um, we do have our weird holiday for the day, for this week. And that is December the 21st, which is Bah Humbug Day. Uh, ah. A day that is set aside for people who don't like Christmas. But I am going to spoil that for you. Okay. Because yep. I don't like generally like Christmas. So, yeah, I'm not really. Spoil a, away. I'm not really a Christmas fan myself either. I don't really have a big family. The traditions are lost on me and the music is awful. So, I guess you could say I'm a humbug. Except that is not what that word means. Uh, ah, well, because, what, does it, what does it mean? Okay, so the word humbug is an old word, an old slang word, and it yep. is synonymous with what we now say as bullshit. But because of the popularity of Christmas Carol, um, right, the word humbug has become synonymous with hating Christmas. But yes. what it actually means, well, our, our, your friend of mine, Ebenezer Scrooge, what he was actually saying was Christmas. Ugh, bullshit. Is yep. what he was saying. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I stand with Scrooge then. Yeah. But yeah, so the word humbug, like I said, now everybody thinks it just means somebody that hates Christmas, but the word actually just means bullshit. Oh, well, that's good to know as we approach National Humbug Day. Yep, National Bullshit Day. There you go. All right, Jeff. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Ah, but- humbug. The worst movie ever. Okay, Jeff. So this movie is legendarily bad. <laughs> yes. 
It is. It re- is indeed. Yeah, it is regarded as one of the worst sequels of all time, and I'll tell you something. I enjoyed it. I'll tell you something too. I also have enjoyed it. Now, in our conversation about diminishing returns, yep, we talked about you know film series that run for a long time and. Each successive film gets a little more derivative to the first one, and the budget goes down, and the star quality goes down, and the director quality goes down, and ultimately the box office that comes in goes down until they eventually peter off and die. Right. Generally, it takes more than four movies for that to happen, but not always. Not uh, this time. I give, you, uh, <laughs> I give you today's film, the fourth film in the Jaws franchise, Jaws the Revenge, which I know this is going to come as a shock to the audience. I have seen this movie 10 times more than I've seen Spielberg's Jaws. <laughs> Instinctively, man has always been drawn to the sea. Its beauty, its mystery, its secrets. There is also a vague uncertainty, a sense of intrusion into an alien world, where man is unwelcome and completely at the mercy of the most terrifying predator on Earth. Man's deepest fear has risen again. Jaws, the revenge. This time, it's personal. So Jaws of Revenge, the very thin plot of it is the widow of Brody from the first Jaws movie. And the second Jaws movie. And the second Jaws movie. Has this theory that there is a shark that is chasing after and killing members of her family. She comes to this conclusion because on Christmas Eve, a shark eats her son who's taken over for Chief Brody on Amity Island. Right. So he goes out to free up a log and gets chomped. Right. And I thought it was very funny that they had like a poster of Brody up on the wall. Yes. It was kind of like, just in case you think you're not seeing a Jaws movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, because this doesn't have to be a Jaws film. You you take Brody, you take the last name Brody out of the equation and the poster on the wall and the sh- flashback that we'll get to at the end of the movie and yep. this is just a, oh yeah this is just a weird shark movie right this could easily be a mid-budget any shark jaws ripoff movie right and there are millions of them i have all, virtually all of them on various dvds because uh, oh, yeah. i love garbage shark movies but yeah this one if they took out ellen brody and they took out the flashback that we'll talk about at the end yeah it could be called you know the teeth monster or Mad <laughs> shark or you know, The Last Shark Fighter or uh, Mario Van Peebles, what are you thinking? Or whatever. We'll get there. So the, the uh, Brody's son gets, you know, uh, attacked by a shark and the mom is like on the phone with the other son who lives down in Bermuda. Right. And she's like, he got killed by a shark and the shark killed the, your father. He's like, no, dad died from a heart attack because right. of the shark, right. you know. Right. <laughs> she's, Oh, it's the long game. It's the yeah. long game for the sharks, right? Yeah. So she's all about it. So 
And also, just let me throw this in. I was very happy that I can now throw this movie out there whenever the internet starts blowing up this week about how Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And I'm like, yeah, Jaws the Revenge is a Christmas movie, okay? <laughs> yes, it is. So, um... Humbug. <laughs> the son that lives down in Bermuda convinces the mother to come and move down there with him for now. And right. she's like... Bermuda's- Totally not like Martha's Vineyard. It's not an island. It's exactly an island. It's <laughs> in water. It's exactly in water. And he's an underwater an, an underwater biologist, which doesn't mean that he spends all of his time underwater where the sharks live. Just right. Not out there. Yeah. So uh, she she is saying no, and I don't want you to work in the water. You know, he's like, well, mom, that's like my job. That's what I literally went to college for. That's what I do for right. money. And she's like, that shark is going to get you. And he explains to her, just like everybody that's watching the movie is thinking, uh, that's Bermuda. The water is really warm. Sharks don't like warm water. No worries. Well, right. they all go down to Bermuda. And she meets a charming uh, airplane pilot named Michael Caine. <laughs> you just call him Michael Caine. It's easy enough to do. Yeah. Uh, since he never tries to be anything but Michael Caine. Yeah, exactly. He's Michael Caine in every single movie, but like Michael Caine as a pilot, Michael Caine as. Uh, <laughs> right. Whatever he's in, yeah. Uh, so at any rate, she meets Michael Caine, and of course, Michael Caine is charming to a fault, and right. uh, and they start they start dating, because of course yes. they do. Yep. So now they. They get over to, um, you know, they go over to the boat where Brody Jr. works. He has a partner on this boat that is played by Mario Van Peebles, <laughs> yes. who is doing a horrible Jamaican accent. He definitely is uh, the least of the Baja men. Yeah. The My Jamaican accent is way better than his. And, and Yes. Yeah. And I'm not an actor in a movie. And another thing about his accent is it kind of came and went like a bad radio signal. Sometimes he had a Jamaican accent, sometimes he didn't. It was it was come and go, yeah. I think that was a, a consequence of like, because they filmed, a, they refilmed a, some of this stuff when they were getting it ready to go to cable TV. And mm -hmm. I think that that's part of it. So I have to go back and watch it again and flag where they are. Because yeah. I don't remember exactly when those are, but I remember watching it thinking like, that sounds like Mario Van Peebles, not like, you know, a guy from... The Bahamas or from Jamaica or yeah. from, you know, the Dominican Republic. And generally those, I think, were the scenes that were shot later. So that the end of the film made some semblance of sense. So they're down in the Bahamas and Ellen, that's uh, Brody's widow, she's still freaking out about the shark. And there's a couple of, like, nightmare sequences. Like, she gets eaten by a shark and then she wakes up all sweaty. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> no, I fell for it again. And then, all of a sudden, they're in the Bahamas, which they flew down there, okay? Planes right. are pretty fast. They flew down there, and somehow the shark got there before they did. <laughs> the shark that ate Brody, well, I assume it's the shark that ate Brody's uh, son and this brother, other brother, the other brother's brother, yeah, is now attacking them. And they're all saying the same thing. No, sharks don't act like that. And I'm over there with my bowl of popcorn. I'm like, yeah, sharks don't act like that. And I'm <laughs> fine with it. I'm watching this piece of shit 
movie, and I'm like, I'm fine with it. Okay, the shark is following them. Cool. And this is a case where you know the the cast of the film is way better than the material that they have to yep. deliver. Um, Elaine Brody is played by Lorraine Gary, as we said, who is the the wife of Brody in Jaws One and Jaws Two. Mm-hmm. The scientist's son is Lance Guest, who you probably last saw in The Last Starfighter. Okay. And and again, there's also Mario Van Peebles and and Michael Caine. Michael Caine mm-hmm. uh, doing the most Michael Caine thing that Michael Caine has ever Michael Caine by being in this film. All of those people are pretty good actors. Michael Caine especially. They have to sell like the stupidest, stupidest dialogue <laughs> that I'm sure any of them have ever said. I'm sure at some point Lance Guest was looking at like the last Starfighter, and he's thinking like Codan Armada, what the hell is this? And then he looked at the Jaws, the Revenge script, and he's like, I sex conks. <laughs> Where's the spaceship one? Give me the spaceship one again, you know? <laughs> um, because it just, it's just, it's just awful. Right. And the, the sex and conch things is what his job is. He's counting how many mating pairs of conchs there are in the in the in the in uh, Bahamas, which sounds like a punishment job that you would get assigned from a judge. No, the punishment job he has is to star in Jaws of Revenge. So, <laughs> yeah, so now true. they're over there counting, you know, large seashell, uh, you know, things. That's their job, which is pretty benign. You know, and now there's a yes. shark, and not just a shark, a big, big honking shark, and it's trying yes. to attack them, right? So at this point in time, I'd be like, I should have listened to my mother, but no, he is going to stick this tracking device on the shark because I guess he had one handy. There's like a sunken ship down there that he like hides from the shark, and then you know, he's deep under the water on this sunken ship, and he takes his aqualung, turns it upside down and like punctures it so they can <laughs> swim, you know, shoot up to the top of the water, you know, faster than the shark can swim. And I'm like, okay, right. two things. One, your lungs are going to explode if you go from low, you know, under the water deep to the surface that fast. You're right. just going to explode. That's going to be it for you. And two. You're, you're going to get the bends yeah. for sure. And Two, that shark can apparently swim faster than 600 miles an hour because it gets to the Bahamas before you did. And what I want to know is, I mean, thinking about that scene and, and how fast the shark moves in general is, how how is it able to go so fast when it is clearly made out of styrofoam oh, yeah. and some canvas? What? It is the worst shark puppet I have ever seen outside of like the Danny Lerner $500,000 shot in Russia shark movies that I have here on DVD, like Shark Zone. I don't know, it man. Is an atrocious puppet, man. The, the one in Jaws 3 that looked like a potato with eyes on it was pretty bad, too. <laughs> yeah, but it was in 3D, so I let that slide. Yep. The one that had the tail that didn't move as it slowly washed towards the audience yep. out of the frame. Yeah. So. Now, that does look like a potato. Now, there's a shark. He's mentioned that they saw a shark, and yet everybody's still out there in the water, and his little daughter is out there on this, like, banana float thing, and here comes the shark, and brrr, there it go. It takes down one of the kids. <laughs> yep. Right? It ate, her, it ate her leg. Yes. Did she die? I think it, As far as we know. I think it just ate her leg. 
Well, she didn't this come back at the, the end. This movie is almost like G.I. Joe, the cartoon, where, like, nobody dies. I know the first son died, but, like, later on, nobody else dies. Like, the shark doesn't give a shit about anybody else. It's like, he bites somebody. He's like, hey, you're not a Brody, and spits him out. <laughs> he definitely has a smaller death category count than any of the other Jaws yeah, movies. He's got a very particular palate. So... Mm. So after this banana boat incident, uh, the mother's like, F- this sh-. And she steals a boat and just like heads out to sea. I don't know what her game plan, I don't know what her uh, her end game was, but she just like heads out there. I guess she's going to beat up the shark. No, she's going to sacrifice herself to the shark. Oh, she's going to go get eaten. Or that. And, yep. and that'll make it all go away. You th- At least that's, you that's what I infer <laughs> yeah. from the 20 times I've watched this. Yeah. She goes out there. And then Mario Van Peebles and Brody Jr. are going to take after her in this, like, <laughs> motorboat. And yep. Michael Caine was fishing. And he was like, yeah, it's going to take you forever to find her like that. Which is not how Michael Caine talks. He's not Australian. But whatever. <laughs> They're like, well, do you... He might as well be in this yeah, movie. The, do you have a faster way? So he gets the plane. And they're taking <laughs> off after Brody's mom with the plane. I don't know what he was thinking, because he didn't have an end game either. Because he just crashes the plane into the water and sinks it, uh, and then everybody almost gets eaten by sharks as they swim over to the boat. Yeah, at this at this point in time in the movie, everybody gets eaten by the shark a little bit. My favorite scene in the whole film comes after this segment. Yep, and it's the like you see the plane, which is not a seaplane, comes down like he's gonna crash a four hundred thousand dollar. Beechcraft to do this, but who knows? Right. I've been in love before too. But anyway, he crashes the plane, and then it's shot from underwater as they all climb out of the plane and are swimming towards the boat. And then you get the shark's eye view as they're swimming towards the boat. And then you see that they're all swimming towards the boat. And then Michael Caine climbs onto the boat in completely dry clothes. Yeah, bone dry. Yeah. <laughs> That's some expensive linen you got there, Mikey, because wow. <laughs> It wicks away sweat. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so, at this point in time in the movie, they had put this thing, this device, inside the shark. Like, they got the shark to eat this sonic thing that they could control with a remote control. So, they start flicking the switch on the remote control, which sends really hypersonic signals into the shark. And it's like, you know, I almost like a dog whistle where it's like, driving the shark crazy, Putting the shark in like ultimate pain, the shark starts breaching out of the water, and then <laughs> and roaring, yeah, and roaring like an animal, Roar! exactly. And then in like <laughs> two of the funniest seconds in cinema history, the shark breaches out of the water, roars like a lion, and then gets hit by like the the bow of the ship, and then explodes. I don't know yes. why. I don't have that answer. That thing just exploded. The shark just went kaboom. <laughs> it went kaboom because they shot a different ending. The original ending, you can the theatrical ending, you can you can find on YouTube. Yep. Where the bow of the ship, the bowsprit goes smashing through the shark's gills, and then it rips the front of the boat off, and then slowly drizzles down into the sea, trailing. A cascade of blood with no explosion. Right. And it gets pierced by something that's as as sharp and thick as a telephone pole. Yeah. If you freaking impale a shark, you know, all right, I could see the shark dying like that. But 
the home video release, not only does the shark explode, which is insulting, really bad. Right. But the other thing was Mario Van Peebles' character gets eaten by the shark, and the shark like bites him, and then yeah. is dragging him under the water. And, right. and a scene that whenever I was watching it upset me greatly, where like Mario Van Peebles is like punching the shark, like yeah. as the shark is like dragging him down. Not just dragging him down, biting him in half, like uh, uh yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, he's, and he's got yes. the wherewithal to punch the shark, you know. Now. Right. I've never been bitten by a shark, but everyone I've ever seen, like, uh, you know, documentaries and stuff like that, it looks like it hurts, like a lot, you know? Yes. And Mario Van Peebles, like I said, he's got the wherewithal to, like, you know, stop punching the the shark in the nose. In the theatrical version, that was it. No more Mario Mario Yeah, he's he's dead. Yeah, no more Mario Van Peebles, no more Jamaican accent. And that's fine. In the home video release, not only do they insult you and say you're an idiot for making it this far into the movie by exploding the shark, who knew that they were you know, volatile like that, but at the end of the movie, Mario Van Peebles pops up, into the, up out of the water like a cork, and he's not dead. I mean, he's a little worse for wear, <laughs> but he's not dead. And yes. Brody Jr. is like joking with him like, you better not die on me. <laughs> <laughs> you can see in that scene that they shot later that they're all very clearly in a tank. Yeah. Uh, a backlot tank. You so can the, see like a diving back board is, in the background. Yeah. You can, can't see a diving board, but you can see the painted sky on the back of the, on the, back of the tank. Yeah. And the, it's clearly got f- like freshwater waves and not ocean waves. It was, It's terrible. It's a terrible ending to a dumb, dumb movie. But all of that said, it is astonishingly entertaining. Yeah. To sit through. Like, uh, whether you're watching it for the terrible looking shark, the characters who spout baffling dialogue and then almost look at the camera like, what am I doing in this movie? To the the plot that makes almost no sense at all. It is a blast to watch. I have a huge, huge plot issue with this movie. And that is Jaws 1, They there was a shark... And and they killed the shark, right? Jaws two, yes. there's another shark that you can kind of almost. I mean, these aren't normal sharks. These are big, abnormally sized great white sharks. So right in the second Jaws, they kind of imply that this one might have been like the mom of the shark and and the shark and Jaws. Yes, you know. And then Jaws three. I don't know who that one is in the family. Maybe he's a cousin or something like that. I don't think it's any of them are Brodies in in the in the third one. No, I'm talking about the shark. Oh, oh, oh I see. Yes. Yep. Well, that one's even bigger than the sharks in the first two. It's almost a megalodon. Remember right. They find like the they find like the baby. I'm saying baby with air quotes. That's 15 feet long that they can't keep alive. Yeah. And then they capture the one in the giganto tank. That's which is right. Like that's a, right. Yeah. A 25 or 35 foot long shark. Right. And then, now, Jaws 4, there's another shark, and this one apparently knows the other three sharks that got killed, and he's a li- <laughs> and he's like, from Princess Bride, you know, prepared to die. Right. I don't know a lot about sharks, but I'm going to guess there's probably more. Get there the hell indeed. away from the water. Go to Las Vegas. It's nice. It's beautiful this time of the year. <laughs> they have pools. You yeah. can swim there, too, and you're totally safe. Yep. Or, you know, get an apartment building. 
Very rarely do you see sharks happen, you know, in high well, rises. I'm sure that if there was a fifth shark film, yep. it would have been Jaws 5, Land Shark. Cue Saturday Night Live music because they used to make fun <laughs> of the idea of this movie by having sharks that knocked on people's doors and then ate them as they opened it. Yeah. All right. So before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, man. Okay, I'm ready. So a shark can get from Martha's Vineyard to the Bahamas <laughs> in just under 24 hours, apparently. So that would be about 600 miles an hour. How fast do you think the International Space Station travels? How fast is it traveling in miles per hour? Round numbers, please. A thousand miles an hour. Okay. You are off by magnitudes. See, the Earth rotates at 1,000 miles an hour, so that would take 24 hours to do one rotation around the Earth. The International Space Station rotates around the Earth in about 93 minutes. That thing is screaming. So the International Space Station maintains a speed roughly, in round numbers, 17,000 miles an hour. Oof, that's fast. Y'all got to get a ticket. All right, but that's going to wrap up the show for this week. My friends, we will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Roar! I'm roaring like a shark. Roar! (laughs) Bye, guys. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibbly or twwwbly subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends they'll probably get all the trivia questions right too bastards